This is Daniel Figel, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. We talk about AI from a lot of different perspectives here on the show, from the perspective of an enterprise leader trying to integrate AI, from the perspective of a vendor or someone trying to develop AI products or services. And this week, we talk about some of the lessons learned from national artificial intelligence strategy. Very few people have a seat at the table in terms of the formation of national AI strategies and really getting to see an inside look at what it looks like to roll out AI at a countrywide level, but our guest this week does. Our guest is Keith Stryer. He's the VP of Worldwide AI Initiatives at NVIDIA, and he is also uh, someone who I had met in person at United Nations headquarters. Uh, over a year ago, we gave a presentation on deepfakes at UN headquarters, which you can find at emerge.com by searching for the term deepfakes, just one word. You can learn more about that right up and even see the video that we played at the headquarters of the United Nations. Keith was there on a panel. I got to hear some of his expertise and we got to grab a dinner afterwards. And I liked Keith's perspective and I thought it was rare that he was one of the fellas in the room when he was heading up artificial intelligence for pretty much all of Ernst & Young. He was in the room when nations were talking about building their AI strategy, where they were going to invest, what their infrastructure, their talent plan, and their overall strategy would be. So this week, we talk about what some of those uh, ideas are for what AI infrastructure looks like at a national level from Keith's perspective now sitting in NVIDIA, um, and also what lessons can be gleaned from that experience that people running businesses can learn. So there's some things that countries who get AI right are doing properly that companies can also learn from. And Keith goes into a little bit of that towards the end of this interview as well. Some of you listening in have already looked at some of our national level focus on AI. We did a great piece on the AI ecosystem in China. We've done a great piece in the AI ecosystem in India. And one of our most recent reports, which was quite popular about four months ago when it came out, uh, was our U.S. public sector AI opportunity report, essentially looking at where the U.S. government is spending on AI initiatives. So if you're looking to partner with the U.S. government to get funding from the U.S. government or to offer AI products or services to the U.S. government, this is a report that's essentially a window into where those opportunities lie. This is from our research and our research fellow, Ryan Smithwright, who worked with me on that report over the course of three or four months. You can find that report at emerj.com slash gov1. That's gov like government and then the number one, emerge.com slash gov1. You can find our other reports at just emerj.com slash reports, and you can see what else we've covered in the past. But I thought that that national level report might be of interest to the folks tuned in here today. Without further ado, we're going to fly into some of the lessons learned in national AI infrastructure and how those lessons can transfer to the private sector as well. This is Keith Stryer with NVIDIA here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Keith, uh, where I wanted to get us started here is just on the big picture of national artificial intelligence infrastructure. You and I were both around in the early days when you know countries first started creating a national AI plan, and there's a lot of excitement around what this can mean for our economies and for science. But what are the elements of infrastructure? It's not just hardware, not just software. When you think about that question, how do you like to break it down? Yeah, you know, there's different mindsets to that, and I think there's a lot of reason to to dive into that question because it sounds like a black and white issue, right? Infrastructure, I mean, AI infrastructure is probably like IT infrastructure, right? And, and the answer would be no, that's that's wrong. And and AI is done on a computer. And so that would probably have to be in a big data center or maybe attached to an academic research institute. And that's correct in some cases, but that's also not a complete answer either. So when you think about national AI infrastructure, you really want to unpack it. 
because policymakers are making really important decisions on where to invest and where to prioritize limited public resources, uh, not just for this year, and obviously there's a lot going on this year and maybe unfortunately next year too, related to the pandemic. But when you think about generational investments and where how we're going to position the country, uh, where are you going to place those bets? And, and in order to do that, as a policymaker, you really have to understand what is inside this idea of national AI infrastructure. And I just think it's changed pretty dramatically in, in just a few years. So historically, again, AI infrastructure would normally be associated with a really big computer, often very expensive, typically in the hundreds of millions, filling up a very large data center attached to an academic research institute or or some sort of state-owned data center. And its primary purpose would be an engine for scientific discovery. I mean, these were tools for scientists, right? They attracted great scientists from abroad. They they advanced the R&D agenda. They, they brought prestige to the country, they would sometimes foster international collaboration. Those are all very important. They, they still are. But that has been the majority focus, if not the exclusive focus of what you'd think of as far as supercomputing historically. Now, you know, when we talk about national AI infrastructure, it includes that, certainly as high-performance computing and AI have converged, uh, but, but it's much bigger. I mean, it's much more important now to the future growth stability of a country. So now it's an engine, not just for scientific discovery, but it's an engine for economic growth. It's an engine for industrial innovation, for startups, for local entrepreneurs. And when you add up all those things, when you think about what those stakeholders do, they, they generate jobs. I mean, it's not just about winning the Nobel Prize and discovering a, a molecule or interpreting, you know, sort of a, a blip on a, on, a, on a screen, you know, when you're looking up in outer space, but it, it's it's about job creation and generating new revenues for the state. So, so supercomputing wasn't usually associated with that. The other aspect of this and the other way you need to think of it functionally is AI supercomputers are now a platform for public innovation. Right, there are tools that can be built on these machines to make government more accessible, like conversational AI. Right, you you can use these technologies to detect infectious diseases, which you know, which is I think something we can relate to today. Yeah, you can use them to improve the urban quality of life in cities. That's a that's a big focus. Uh, secure your borders and and ports, uh, and even to monitor your physical infrastructure. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of risks and threats there. So you've got this idea of a machine sitting somewhere and its actual purpose and its value to the state, right? To a nation state has, has expanded significantly. So that that's one dimension uh, okay. to it that I think really begs the question. Yeah. So you, clearly, you know, back in whatever the old days were, you know, the late eighties, you know, the nineties, whatever we want to say, your infrastructure for, I mean, you know, the question of national AI infrastructure at any point other than the last, let's say eight years is somewhat absurd, I think, for most countries. Even the conversation just wasn't had anywhere. You know, our, our computing power was sort of a, do we have big supercomputers? You know, can we win some Nobel Prizes? You know, th this stuff is kind of novel. It's sort of interesting. Hopefully, it's going to spurn some innovation. You know, cross your fingers. What you're getting at now is that clearly artificial intelligence is making a much broader impact. It is poised to make an astronomically larger impact in terms of the winners and losers across different industries. And that governments can now think about wielding this new set of capacities themselves in terms of work with their citizens, but also think about growing this capacity as a nation so that they can stay ahead on innovation and economy, et cetera. Am I, am I nutshelling the big picture here, Keith? 
Yeah. I mean, you said winners and losers, and I I try to avoid that kind of black and white language when you talk at the national level. I think it's very clear and appropriate when it comes to more commercial enterprises. I mean, within any given industry or sector, I mean, there's going to be winners and losers. I I don't think it's that clear cut at the national level. What I would say is, is that it's more about participating in the digitalization of the global economy and, and ensuring that your citizens get the full benefits of that. And, and it's it's also about, frankly, ensuring uh, national security and, and peace sort of, you know, as, as part of the geopolitical landscape. These uh, tools, you know, uh, both protect you as well as enable you to profit uh, in ways that, you know, that, that are important going forward. Because if you have the wrong technology based on where the economy is going, then your citizens are not going to benefit from that. So making the right investments is not just a political thing. It's it's strategic for the future trajectory of, of many countries, bigger countries, wealthy countries, countries that I would, you know, that are characterized with national GDPs over 250 billion and above, yep. uh, which are many, you know, they have a, a great diversity to their country and typically a much bigger industrial base and, and, and so forth. They're affected, but when you think of the smaller countries, countries that have 5, 10, 25 billion in GDP, and there are plenty of those, including in Central Europe and Eastern Europe and Latin America and you know, other parts of the world, those countries, you know, this is critical, right? National AI infrastructure is, is not a nice to have anymore. It is the new critical infrastructure for them. And in order to ensure that they can participate in the new digital economy in any way, this technology has to be consumed by them in some way. And I think the good news is, and this, you know, to put a a bright spot on it, that the trajectory of technology has been pretty clear for a long time, right? Every, on on some regular basis, the technology gets way more powerful and way less expensive, right? That's a very crude, you know, I think everyone, you know, we've all experienced that in everything, you know, every part of our lives, you know, from laptops to watches. We, We understand that implicitly, but that's actually not been the case for supercomputing as an industry for a long time, the actual uh, processors themselves have gotten incredibly more powerful, including the ones that my company, you know, NVIDIA makes, if you look at the cycle over the last 26 years. But computers, the actual supercomputers themselves, the, the reference architecture, the design and engineering of these very specialized machines has remained the domain of only the wealthiest, biggest countries. And I'll give you a very clear number to, to kind of bring this to life. You know, there's a list called the top 500. And it's literally the top500.org or something like that. This is a sort of a standard setting body that tracks the most powerful computers on Earth. And they have a test and, and you run these tests and, it, and you, you, you get a, a measure of performance as far as the, the power of your system. And we don't need all of the details, but there's a list. And, and number one on the list right now is in Japan at the Riken Center for Computation. And, and you go through the list. Now, of those 500, the vast majority of those computers sit in two countries. And you can guess what those two are, right? U.S. Yep. and China. But there are about 28 countries in total that are on that list. Now, that's actually very interesting because, you know, there's 180 countries, right? Roughly 180 countries in the world yep. and only 25. So what is that? You know, roughly 15% of the countries in the world have a computer fast enough to qualify of being in the top 500. Now, why is that important? Well, up until a few years ago, that was important for science, as I was just saying a few minutes ago. If you wanted to win a prize, if you wanted to you know, publish and, and, and attract the world's best scientists and advance your field, you know, most likely you had to be in a country at a university attached to one of those machines. You know, it just, it's become increasingly difficult to do your work if you don't have access to that. But now that the use cases and the value proposition has expanded so dramatically, 
And AI supercomputing is you're training models not just to interpret molecular structures, although that's still very important, but you're now, you know, you're now building models to automate factories and to inspect bridges and to improve clinical care and to do all these other things and to drive recommender systems that power great consumer experiences. Now, now that you have that, you know, that those broader use cases, not having a supercomputer is a problem for a lot of countries. They're not able to participate now in the technology innovation that's driving a lot of the growth and wealth in the world. What's good is that the technology has started to become more modular, more scalable, more consumable. And so what used to cost, say, 10 or $15 million, uh, you know, and that may not sound like a lot in the world of big, but, you know, for some countries, that's still a lot of money, is now a million dollars. So when we rolled out our Ampere, our, our latest GPU architecture, Ampere in June, and with it, our next generation DGX AI supercomputer, we took what was a room, an entire data center, 25 racks and 600 plus servers in order to create, you know, a certain level of computational power. Uh, and the cost associated with that was, you know, roughly 10 to 15 million plus, you know, the operating costs. And we've consolidated that down to a single rack with six servers. Hardware is one of, let's say, oh, jeepers, maybe 20 different elements of what AI infrastructure actually implies. Obviously, it's a business you're yeah. in. I get that. But by golly, uh, supercomputers ain't, ain't the whole picture here. Uh, it's super ain't. No. So there's a lot of other elements in what it looks like for a country to be ready for this stuff. You got some big computers, you know, high five yourself. It's definitely a big, it's a, it's a big part. <laughs> it's, it's a big part of the mix. You know, we can't leave the right hardware, the right, you know, investments out of the game. But man, there's so much else here. I know we want to talk about what does it take to start, you know, lifting well, yeah, our level yeah. and, and moving yeah. forward. But, but I want to talk about the other yeah. ingredients here. Yeah. So the other, so there's at least four ingredients. I mean, we, there's probably 40, right? But, <laughs> yeah, if we uh, wanted to. Uh, yeah, and, if you've and, got four, but, that's but, awesome. Uh, it, it so let, let's, I keep it at four. And your point is fair. And so when, when we talk about this in the marketplace, on the left, you have AI strategy. And again, as you and I talked about when we, when we first met, was kind of the, the beginning of that wave of, of AI strategy yes, plan development yes, yes, across yep. the world, right? So we're three years into that journey, right? As a world. So you, know, you got you AI strategy, and that's never done. You're going to keep versioning that and, and evolving that strategy. The next thing you need is, is AI policy and regulation. Now, I'm not saying you need a certain kind of regulation but or a certain kind of policy, but clearly the widespread adoption of these technologies is you know has to be balanced off with you know, an understanding of how to do it in a responsible way, right? And NVIDIA believes, and I think most of my peers you know, in the industry believe that, that it's very important for government and academia and, you know, and all the sort of necessary stakeholders yeah, to, yeah. to figure that out, right? And, and, and to do that, because we, you, there'll be a lot of great examples of this technology, but it's going to hit a wall. And it has. I mean, we've seen some examples where it has hit a wall. So, so you need to have, you need to develop that. And I think the countries that get ahead of that, you know, we'll see a faster uptick on the other front. So AI strategy, AI policy regulation, which is a moving target, I know, but that's still very important. Then you've got the infrastructure, of course, we talked about that. And then the fourth one, which is a really, really big bucket, is the ecosystem. Yeah, and the ecosystem, yeah. you know, now the ecosystem to me isn't just other companies. It's also the people, the humans, right? It's the data scientists and the students and the professors, you know, the mid-level IT execs that are passionate about taking a course at night, you know, to, to kind of up their game and learn how to do machine learning. So it's all of the humans that are going to take advantage of all that infrastructure because, you know, you can't have one without the other. And then there's other organizational entities in there. You've got the large industrial players, of course, and they're important, but you also have startups and the startups are so vital and they're such a driving force to AI. I don't think there's ever been an industry that's been propelled as much as AI by startups. 
you know, that, yep. that, so much of the energy and momentum is coming through these companies that did not exist two, three, four, five years ago. Yeah. Right? So you've got all these sort of communities and you've got these people and they need skills and you need investors. And, you know, so this really multidimensional ecosystem, I mean, that's the big one, right? And, and you <laughs> yeah. need a strategy, you need a strategy to understand how to connect the dots and incentivize and protect and really bring those the, those folks together. You need policy and regulation to protect them and provide sandboxes to the ecosystem so they can innovate. And they know, you know where the lines are right in the sand. And you need infrastructure right to enable them. And that infrastructure could be in the cloud, the public cloud, for example. It could yep, be yep. in a private or a sovereign data center. It could be at the far edge out in outer space. You know, It could be all sorts of places. But you need all four of those elements I think that's the ingredient for success. Does that yep. make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And, and I, you know, the, obviously the ecosystem one is the one we talk about most here on the show, although certainly we touch on, on infrastructure. We touch a pinch on infrastructure. We touch a, somewhat of a good deal on, on ethics every now and again. But the ecosystem, like you said, yeah. so many ingredients. We've got, we've got talent. And it's not just the developers and the scientists, but it's also you know, the people with a little bit of that, but also some business experience who can start to use it. We've got the companies, which might be the big players that are going to innovate in this space. And it might be the startups that are going to yeah. innovate in this space. We've got academia. We've got you know, accelerators and whatnot. So a lot of moving parts and you've broken it down into four. You've been in the room with national AI strategy with countries around the world, a very, very rare position, which is why I think the second question is really a Keith question. And that is, you know, what does it look like to start to invest in these things the right way? We've got our four ingredients. You know, you've been up close and personal with a lot of them. Now you're with NVIDIA. So infra is something you, you know more about than most. What does it look like as a country starting from scratch or starting from where they are to start to move these levers? You know, it, it's obviously going to be different depending on their financial situation, whatever else. Yeah. Do you have general yeah. advice for government folks that are that are giving this a real consideration? Well, I remember talking to a national CIO and they, and they were explaining to me the challenge that they have on any given day, prioritizing, you know, where to spend the time and resources. And they, the, the way they characterize it was, you know, every day I've got to put 10 pounds of potatoes into a five pound bag. Yeah, and I think it got way worse this year. I think it's more like twenty pounds of potatoes into a five pound bag currently, but it, it's tough because the strategy part I think is pretty well understood, and and for most countries is well underway. The AI policy part that's an evolving landscape, and, and the good news is there are a lot of organizations like OECD and, and and the UN and think tanks and academia, you know, around the world aggressively working, you know, both together and separately on all these different fronts. So I kind of feel like, you know, that, that, that has its own momentum when it comes to the infrastructure and the ecosystem, there's a lot to do. And there's a lot of areas that you need to invest. And frankly, countries struggle to make priorities. And I think that the important thing is to shift away from just talking about it to implementing it and taking action. And I do, and I think countries are starting to do that, but I do think there are countries falling behind as well, who came out early. I will be careful on naming countries, but Countries that came out early in the sort of, you know, the AI wave back in 2017 and 18 with their, their strategies, they haven't all been ahead of the curve when it comes to implementing those plans. And by implementation, it means actually starting to put in place measures like uh, tax incentives, for example, for, you know, investment in AI infrastructure and offering, you know, visas for foreign students and researchers to come to their country. And, you know, all these sort of legislative and policy actions that countries can take to support the ecosystem, to grow the ecosystem, to enable it. Uh, some countries are, are just more effective, you know, t- been more action oriented than others. I think everyone means well and it, everyone sees the value, but not everyone's been able to act on their plans as effectively. And so I think there will be a reckoning 
over the next two mm, or three years okay. on the countries that have really stepped up. It'd be interesting. I mean, I don't want to make any predictions. I yeah, don't think yeah, that's, that's fair or appropriate. But I do think there will be a point where countries will realize that they they were they talked a big game and some stepped up and implemented their actions. Some of those are seeing results already, and other countries really didn't go beyond the plan. If we're thinking just as we're wary where we are on time, but um, I, I want to get this question to you because I think this is one where I certainly want to be tuned in. What, what do you have for practical advice on you know setting those priorities? It's that countries struggle with setting priorities. Of course, we have all these ecosystem elements. We've got infra, we've got governance. You know, we we get enough people from different stakeholder groups in the room, and it's time to prioritize. What do we need to bear in mind to do that? You know, like you said, there's going to be countries that sort of pull ahead in terms of taking advantage of this technology, and others who don't. The ones that do prioritize well, what are they doing that some of the others aren't? I think the countries that are doing well are playing to their strengths, right? They're being realistic. So, you know, countries that, that have limited, some, some of the countries, smaller countries that have limited, uh, we'll say, uh, limited research capabilities, right? They don't have a world-class AI research institute within their borders. So, and they're realistic about their ability to compete on that level. So they're focusing on applied AI, for example. You know, they're focusing on being more consumers of AI use cases than the developers of the models. And I think that's very pragmatic. And I think that's very realistic. Other countries are focusing on an industry or two, you know, that also plays to their strengths. So, you know, they might have a, a really strong base in auto. Well, you can take Germany. I mean, you know, strong base in, in auto, right? It's a big part of the economy. It would make sense that Germany will be a world leader in autonomous vehicles and the development of AI around that technology, right? You would expect that. You wouldn't expect that in a country in the Middle East that has no domestic uh, auto manufacturers, for example. You know, so I think countries are smart to play to their strengths. Uh, I think the UAE has been very aggressive and, and they're one of the countries, frankly, that has not just talked about it and written plans, but are taking action. They're implementing things. They're implementing programs. And I think one of the things I find really interesting about the UAE and some other countries is where they've really put in place KPIs. So to, to hold government leaders accountable for the implementation of those plans, that tends to drive results, right? KPIs drive action. And, and hold people accountable. And that's, that's a, I think that's a best practice in general. That has nothing to do with AI. Yeah, but yeah, I do yeah. think that where, where, where I see that happening, I think you, you see more results. You see people focused on doing things that they're being held accountable for. So transparency and accountability are always good ideas. I think they're particularly good here, especially you know in a very fast-moving world. So the countries that play to their strengths, I think, know where, where their industrial strengths lie, where their, their academic strengths lie, and they're focusing on those. I think they're getting results than being maybe overly ambitious or, frankly, investing in areas that they're not likely to lead in. And again, let me just come back to that last point because you talked about winners and losers yeah, yeah, at yeah. the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I just think there's, look, AI is not one thing. It's a constellation of technologies and it's a constellation of opportunity. And as much as there's risks and threats and there's things that need to be managed and mitigated, AI is a huge opportunity for you know economic growth and prosperity. And it isn't about one kind of model or one kind of tool or one kind of computer or one kind of discipline. There's almost an infinite number of use cases and, and angles here. So countries, large and small, can participate and lead in an area like Canada leads in deep learning, right? And, and other countries have, have their area. And I think there's going to be a lot of winners, is my point. But you have to participate. Certainly, I concur with the general idea. As in the private sector, there is a, you can find your niche. I mean, I you know, lack of a better term, Keith. You know, it seems like, like you're, you're articulating what Germany might think about. Where is your place yeah. 
where is your place for progress? And asking that at a country level, let me see if I can nutshell what you've said, because I think many of our private sector listeners are also going to get a lot of value out of this way of thinking, maybe at a company level. Certainly, there's a lot more to say about AI vision, which we won't be able to fit in today. But let me make sure I'm I'm getting your point. It's essentially think about where you are potentially leading, sort of where is your starting place for your, your technology, your various industries, where you can see future influence and sort of economic opportunity, et cetera, and ask, what does it look like for our infrastructure, for our AI ecosystem, and, you know, and, our, and our mix of talent, and even for our governance and regulation to sort of ensure that we can grow in the direction of maybe where our big wins for our country might be, That's right. That's to right. sort of think through that lens. Is that a proper takeaway, Keith? Yeah, that's very well said. Nice. All right. Well, for those of you, for those of you in, uh, you know, big companies, whether it be, you know, heavy industry or, you know, financial services, et cetera, the same kind of question can often be asked when we're thinking about AI strategy. Although right now we're still in a phase where most large firms are popping off small projects in various dark corners. But I think your advice transfers pretty well to the private sector too, Keith. Yeah. I mean, we are in the age of shadow AI in large part, right? That's just where we are. Just like with shadow IT, 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 it is happening in a very distributed, largely uncontrolled manner, uh, that'll change as both private and public enterprises mature. Big time. But at least, you know, we've got some evidence of those folks that are doing it right. And you've been in the room in many occasions when strategy has been executed. And I think your takeaways today should be transferable for those tuned in today. I know that's all we had for time. But Keith, thank you so much for being able to join us on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I'll make it clear as I always do on our episodes here. Our guests speak for themselves and we bring them on for their own experience and expertise, not as uh, speaker boxes for their particular company. So Keith comes to us as someone with rich experience at EY, at NVIDIA, and even in a previous kind of consulting roles at Deloitte. And I thought his experience would be relevant here today as a professional. So he speaks for himself, but I think his vantage point from some of those prominent firms was hopefully useful for some of you tuned in. If you've enjoyed the show, if you like when we bring on high-level folks from big name brand companies to get an understanding of what AI is doing in the industry, it would mean the world to hear from you with a five-star review on iTunes, what is now called Apple Podcasts. Again, if you enjoy the program, drop us a review there. Let us know what you want to see more of. What do you enjoy about the show? What guests really jumped out at you? What topics do you want to see covered in the future? It's those reviews that have helped to mold the conversations that we have every single week here on the podcast because we pay attention to them. And they're also things that we share internally as a team every single Monday. We pull up our customer support emails that were kind of exceptions and things we might want to look at. We also look at all of our reviews for the podcast and show to come up with new ideas to help serve you guys. So I really do appreciate your thoughts. Drop us a five-star review on iTunes if you've enjoyed what you've heard here. And make sure to stay subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or anywhere where you're tuned in via podcast. Thanks again so much for joining us here this week, and I'll catch you next Tuesday for our use case episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.